0: and the world of your dreams. On this episode of Mike's Search for Meaning, my guest is Andy Cahill. Andy is a transformative coach and facilitator who excels at inspiring culture makers, innovators, and change agents to dig deep, dream big, and do their greatest work. He spent almost 20 years working in education, public service, and human development. He's also an essayist, a musician, the host of the Wonder Dome podcast and the author of the critically acclaimed science fiction novel Gradient. And as you could tell from his bio, Andy is very multifaceted, and this conversation addresses how we are all multifaceted. So one of the ways that we get into this is talking about internal family systems Andy does a really wonderful job of eloquently explaining what internal family systems is. And in essence, we all have multiple parts of ourselves. We're not necessarily only a musician or only an analytical thinker or only a creative person, etc. And down the list it goes, we are extremely multidimensional. We have various parts of ourselves and internal family systems helps us integrate all of it into a whole into our whole humanity. So we spend a good part of the conversation talking about internal family systems and how that is applicable both in his life and in everyone's life. And we talk about how as leaders and as humans it's so important that we are able to hold multiple perspectives on things because A lot of the way our culture is right now the way that we're organized is around a binary that you're either a democrat or republican you're either a man or a woman you're either straight or gay and. While we, we say that, while these can be polarities can be helpful in in ways it's nice to have structure, it also can be really detrimental if you look at life as only a binary and so. Being able to hold various perspectives really opens up a whole lot of possibility. And another thing we touch on in the conversation, this world that we live in right now, it was all dreamed up in someone's mind at some point in time. Like Humans created all of the structures that we are currently integrated into. And one of Andy's greatest gifts is helping us dream into the possibility that there are other futures that we can create. We don't have to settle for what reality is right now. Andy is just a wonderful human. I'm a huge fan of him. I'm a huge fan of all the work that he does. I really suggest you take a look at the Wonderdome podcast. And with all of that said, let's settle in, take a deep breath and enjoy what Andy has for all of us today. Andy, my friend, welcome to my version of the Wonder Dome. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you. It's good to be here. It's good to be here in your search for meaning. Yes. Which, of course, is a part of my own search for meaning. Yes, yes.
0: Well, to my listeners who aren't familiar Andy has a wonderful podcast called The Wonder Dome, and so that's that's what I meant when I said welcome to my version of the Wonder Dome. <laughs> yeah, and, thanks, and man. Yeah, it's I I love your podcast, Andy, and it loves yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> As we get started today, I like to begin every conversation the same way with my, I I was telling you before we hit record, I've had about 25 plus conversations so far. Yeah. I've started, I think every single one of them with this question, and it's Mm. always a delightful way to start the interview. I want to know what it was like at your dinner table when you were growing up.
1: Hmm. Hmm. That is a delightful question. I'm an only child, so uh, it was just me and my folks. And the memories I'm having of my dinner table now are probably sort of in the like ballpark of me being, being between the ages of like eight and fourteen, somewhere in that somewhere in that adolescent to you know pubescent period of life. Because I'm an only child. Uh, and back when I grew up, there fortunately wasn't this abundance of addictive media. There were still TV and cartoons, and I and video games. I did my fair share of all of those, but uh, I read a lot. And I read so much that even at dinner, I have memories of like just, "Okay, Andy, it's dinner time," and I'd bring a book to dinner. And I don't know actually. I've never asked my parents how they felt about it, but they didn't stop me. They just like, "Okay, he's reading. Like, we're gonna let him read." So a lot of times at dinner, it was sort of my parents talking about what they were talking about with me not really listening while I was off in some other imaginal world by, and I love to read like fantasy and sci-fi and lots of fiction at that age. Some of it looking back quite good, other pretty terrible, but I didn't have that discernment at the time. It was just sort of whatever you put in front of me, if it had dragons or spaceships or adventures or anything of that sort. I was into it. So a lot of my dinner table meals that I can recall were actually me kind of eating while I was somewhere off in some fantasy journey.
0: Mm. That is something that I want to revisit with you because I know that sci-fi is something near and dear to you. You've actually written a book. Yeah. And world building is something that even outside of sci-fi, I know you're passionate about. I mean, in, in a way, our, our entire reality is just a bunch of people's world building.
1: Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. so we'll,
0: we'll get back to that. Yeah, but- We're
1: all one of my one of the authors, I like a guy named Max Gladstone sort of jokingly says that we're all live action role playing, mm-hmm. you know, like we there's sort of a, a nerdy world of people who who dress up and as wizards and and knights and dragons and whatever. and. And they go role-play together. And and others of us might turn our noses up at that. But actually, we're all, like, literally all of us are live-action role-playing. And sadly, I would argue, most of the roles that we're asked or demanded to play in this reality we've built for ourselves are pretty boring. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
0: it's One of my, I don't want to get too sidetracked, but one of my past guests, her name is Jen Jamula a lot of her work is around helping people become better public speakers, but she has a feeder background. And so mm. Mm. she she talks about how a lot of times when we're public speaking, we or go to work, our alter ego that we bring into that is to become incredibly boring and to pander to What we think other people want. Hmm. And what she invites us into is to take on like who do we really want to be? And and one of the answers might be those the the nerdy group that you alluded to that we make fun of. Like they're really channeling a a part of them that is actually authentic to them. Yeah. And there's there's a really there's a lot of wisdom that we can take from someone like that. But yeah, I wanna I'm gonna put a pin in that part for now. Okay. Okay. We'll get we'll get back to it. And I'm interested. You know, one one of the things I'm after with the dinner table question is, what was your relationship like with your parents? And like, what is is there some way that the way that you grew up informed your first career choice? Because I know that you've you've bounced around a little bit in your career. And so I'll also add in there and then you could take this wherever whatever direction you would like to. I am interested, like how much was the way that you were as a child encouraged by your parents or how much did you not feel safe being you as as Mm. a child?
1: Hmm. My relationship to my parents is really strong. And as a child growing up, I never felt unsafe being me. I definitely had a very private life because I was what back in the day I was called the latchkey kid. Um, My house didn't actually have a latchkey, but that was like a thing where like, if you knew where the latchkey was, you could get into the house um, on your own. And so so every day after school, I would come home and be by myself for a couple hours at least because both my parents worked. And so once I was old enough to do that, they would leave me by myself. Earlier when I was younger, there was, I grew up on a really sweet street. There was a, a woman who lived on the street who kind of, took care of all the kids. So we actually had a really awesome kind of like a little mini, mini kingdom of childhood to play in, which was quite nice growing up. So my, my, my sort of, as I sit here in the present moment, my experience of my parents in the past was kind of a really great combination of, you know, just go do whatever you're going to do. So long as you don't kill yourself or anyone else and, you know, make sure you come home for dinner. And we're not going to get too much in the way of your interests. You know, we're going to try. I remember, this is a good memory. I was, my parents got me into music and to the saxophone, but I was really shy and the being in band really like made me kind of shrink up. Uh, And there were, you know, a lot of talented musicians and I just sort of So one day I wanted to quit and I was like really crying about it and complaining about it. And my, my parents were just laughing, like, look, you know, it's your choice, but you're going to regret it. (laughs) And this is around like eighth or eighth or ninth grade. And, and I chose to, to quit and I regret it. And, uh, you know, so like there is something just in that line between we're going to try and share what wisdom we have as best as we know how. We're also going to encourage you to pursue what you're into as best as like, even if it seems a little weird or different to us. And, um, you know, we're going to give you a lot of freedom to figure it out, which, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of my career, was that your question? Like, how did that inform my career? I think that like led me to a pretty circuitous, like moments where I had landed what felt like right on the center of target and moments where I was really like maybe aiming in the right direction, but not lining up with my particular gifts and skills. And it t- I would say it wasn't really until my late 30s that I started to get pretty aligned with what I'm good at, what I care about, and what people need. It took me a long time to figure out that blend of things, but it was always with a sense of support and a sense of, you've got to find your way, Andy, and we'll do our best to support you. But here's what we think you should do we can tell you don't think you should do that so all right let's see what happens that is such a fascinating
0: example because I had the the same exact basically the same exact experience Hmm. as well I played the saxophone until (laughs) through through ninth grade actually and in ninth grade was when I that was my first year of high school it was just not looked at as a cool, I don't know if it ever was, but it was a mandatory requirement in sixth, seventh and eighth grade. And then ninth grade, it was an elective for me. And I decided to do it because I liked it, but I, there's, there's so many reasons, but one of the things about me in high school was that I wanted to fit in more with like, you know, the quote unquote, cool kids and Mm, playing mm. saxophone was not part of being a cool kid. So there are like one specific memory for me was in eighth grade. I think it was, I was asked to play a solo and I didn't tell my parents about it. And I was, I was also a very shy kid. I was too embarrassed to do it. And the, the band teacher told my mom about it after, and she was, she was a little shooken up about it. She said, why, why didn't you tell us about it? Mm. That would have been such mm. an honor. And I just, mm. I wasn't I just wasn't ready for it at the time, I guess. Mm. And that mm. carried into ninth grade where I had that same conversation and my parents, especially my mom, who's very musically oriented, said, I, I think one day you're gonna regret this. And I still think about that a mm. lot. You know, it would mm. be really nice to to go back to ninth grade and to see it through because there was there was really something there. And mm. of mm. course, it's it's never it's never too late. I would love to pick the saxophone back up, but it's just, that's I wasn't expecting that example from you. It, I think a lot of people at that age, we were too insecure to do what we want. We just want everyone else to like us. So
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for me, thanks for that is a, a really cool and funny synergy. There's something about the arts that is so potent and powerful and also vulnerable and exposing. I'm not quite sure, like my recollection now is that I didn't want to do it because I just, the social aspect of it was too much for me. It was I just wanted to retreat. You know, the upside of having so much private time as a kid is I had a rich, imaginal private life. The downside was it was hard for me to kind of cross social boundaries and be confident unless I really felt safe. So in certain contexts with certain other kids, I felt safe. But in, in the wider kind of the wider context of middle school and high school, I felt very much like a loner and an outsider and being forced to be in public was really hard for me at the time.
0: Yeah. Do you this might be a fluid answer, but do you identify more
1: as an introvert or extrovert? I know you love you love the book by Susan Cain, Quiet. That's one of yes. your favorites, right? That <laughs> yes. book had a big impact on me too. I read that ten um, ish years ago, and the sort of any binary for me, I'm always a little suspicious of. Yeah. Anytime someone says like, "There's either this or that," you're either introvert or extrovert, you're either a man or a woman, you're either gay or you're straight. You know, like all of those binaries. Our culture is full of them, mm-hmm. and they produce. There's some utility in the polls, if we think of them on like a spectrum, but they produce a lot of suffering and a lot of confusion. They certainly did for me. But what I appreciated about Susan's book was the insight that those two poles are on a spectrum. And if I had to identify, if I had to pick something, the word ambivert, mm-hmm. sort of like the word ambidextrous is the, I'm drawn to that. I get energy when I'm with people who I feel safe with. Uh And I've over time developed a much wider spectrum of people who I feel drawn to and who I want to draw to me than I did as a middle schooler. And in those spaces, I get nourishment and energy, energy, and I want more of it. And I need solitude, I need spaces to be quiet, to explore to dream to imagine. So both is the answer. <laughs> yeah. I, I
0: had a feeling, but I just, just wanted to check that with you. Well, I, I was a little bit curious if you could really loosely connect the dots around your. You said it took until your late 30s for you to find a career that was aligned in all the different ways that you wanted to be aligned, something that mm. you were good at, something that you'd get rewarded for doing, like really something that your heart was behind mm. and that you got enjoyment and, and nourishment out of. What was the. It, your your 20s and early 30s what was your career like at that point
1: well I was a philosophy major in college or as my mom liked to joke an unemployment major and there it was like right there it's like yes you can go to college yes we will help you pay for it yes you can major in philosophy yes I'm going to let you know that I think it's a really weird choice right like that, <laughs> was that all of that beautiful uh complexity but it just was the right I ended up Again, in this kind of safety risk polarity, I ended up choosing a, a small, suburban, mostly white college that, that was easy for me and safe for me. And then when I got there, I realized the downside of that is the part of, parts of me that wanted diversity and stimulation and people who could be really imaginative, there wasn't a lot of that. So I found my way. Like then, I went into a philosophy one-on-one class, and sort of like, oh, like it clicked. This discovery that there was a whole discipline of human beings who had devoted their life to thinking about these questions of identity and mortality and purpose and existence and reality. What is reality? Really, jived with this diet of fantasy and science fiction that I had had grown up on as an only child. So I got just. Took to that really, really potently. And um, by the time I was a senior, you know, a lot of my peers were were applying for corporate jobs and sales jobs and what have you. And I was like, I definitely do not want to do that. But I also wasn't drawn to the the scholarship route. I couldn't imagine devoting myself to studying one philosopher and writing a thesis on one philosopher. So, so no, I'm not going to be a A sort of traditional philosopher, what's the option? And I got really lucky. I met someone who is doing AmeriCorps, which is a sort of domestic Peace Corps, a chance to do public service for very little money. Uh, But I wasn't unemployed, mom. Aha! (laughs) For very little money. But with amazing, I had this amazing, ended up with this amazing mentor. He was a Baptist minister. His name is Mike Duda. He like, drives around on a Harley, but can, can, and he was the first person he would, I remember he was reading a book about Jesus in his office and I came in and on the cover it was, it was a brown skinned Jesus and I had never in my very, I I wasn't raised religious, but I had just, I'd never, never seen that particular image of Jesus before and that's interesting. And I was more like just curious about who this guy was and how he held these, this as a, a, a white Baptist minister who rode around in a Harley who could hold with complexity. That was like something about who he was embodied this journey I was on, but I didn't know how to make that happen. So I just had these amazing two years with AmeriCorps. And then I traveled for a year in New Zealand, which was incredible. And then I came back and sort of foundered for a while. I worked in retail. I, worked in like an administrative role for a nonprofit. I sort of stumbled into a leadership nonprofit role that happened around the time of of the 2008 stock market crash. All the funding for that dried up. I had to find a way to sunset that program with some sort of integrity. And it was really sad and hard and filled with what I experienced as a number of failures. And I went to graduate school to lick my wounds and got exposed to... To to again like this like another like like deep dive into leadership stuff leadership mm-hmm. psychology and development and that was another seed that got planted and then I went back out and I was back in the shit I need to in. I, okay well like I've got this master's degree in education and I have nonprofit experience and I need to make some money so I should go get a leadership job at a nonprofit and it and it was close but not quite right and then another nonprofit last seed that got planted in this journey was I met a leadership coach along the way and and. I went, you do this for a living? (laughs) I couldn't believe it. Uh And that's when things started to click. And that was that was at that point, I was in a job that was producing a lot of intertention for me. Uh, I was starting to get hip to this whole world of coaching. I was thinking about maybe social work, maybe psychology, but oh, wait a minute, I could go, I could get trained and certified and start working in, in a year or six months as opposed to two years or three years or four years. This is interesting. And I actually wrote a job description to the organization I was working with at the time that I said, I'll pay for my certification. I wanna, we have all this untapped talent. I wanna bring in leadership development, talent development, coaching to our organization. I wanna serve all the young leaders that are a part of our organization. And they said no. And it was the best no I could have received because I, my cards were on the table. I couldn't pretend to be in the role anymore, the boring role that your friend, you know, Jamel was talking about. Like I had to go okay, I have to figure out how to play this role out there. And the past five or six years has, have been that journey. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well,
0: this, uh, this is where I wanted to spend most of the conversation around, around this journey of what you're up to in the world right now. So out of curiosity though, you know, I'm kind of thinking back to the, the young Andy, the, the middle school Andy, who felt, I don't know. It, it, you didn't say like you didn't belong. You, it didn't. You didn't say explicitly. You didn't feel like you belonged. But there was. It seemed like a part of you that only really opened up to people that you felt really safe with, and that everyone else it it might have been really scary or it, I don't know what whatever language you would use it. It might have been. It was difficult for you to feel comfortable being yourself in front of lots of people. Yeah. Do you think that that's something that makes you, or one of, one of your superpowers in a way, like, is that something that makes you a really great coach?
1: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. The other piece of the story that, that I have in presence is that I was by some standards overweight and like just a data point. I weighed more at age 13 than I weigh now at age 41 and my body was a source of shame. And it was also a source of material for teasing and bullying that I experienced. I remember an art class in ninth or 10th grade, one of the kids decided to nickname me Gut, mm-hmm. which was painful. Now I am like smiling because I'm like, oh gosh, like look at this, look at this, uh, this context, look at the way kids hurt each other to make, each, make themselves feel better. And so you're asking about my superpower, and and I think that's part of it. My superpower is a sense of helping people get in touch with their essence. Mm -hmm. Who are they really when the masks and the baggage and the fear and the protection doesn't disappear because we need those things or to varying degrees and in varying ways, but but opens up enough that they can get in touch with something that's really them Mm -hmm. and know that. I have experienced the shame and pain of judgment, you know. and I'm gonna maybe use a small S and a small J. um, There's a part of me that wants to honor that there are many young people who have gone through much more torturous mental, emotional, physical childhoods than I have. But for me at the time, it was quite painful. And I know what it feels like to be judged as other, as outsider, as different, to be used as a proxy for someone else's insecurity. So I have a deep commitment to helping people be secure in themselves. And when I meet the parts of them that they're a little afraid of, but that they want to honor and embrace and find a way to do that. The one thing I can commit, no I can commit to doing is not judging or shaming that part of them. Like helping them meet that without shame is something that I've had to do for myself and that I love creating space for others to do as well.
0: Hmm. I know that, if only for a brief time, I believe you studied under Richard Schwartz, the founder of Internal Family Systems. Yeah. This was this was one of the topics that I certainly wanted to get into with you. So could you share a little bit about what your experience was in in working with or under Dr. Richard Schwartz, and then give a little bit of color around what is Internal Family Systems and Uh, And what's its import in your life and Mm. in the work that you Mm. do with your clients?
1: Mm. I feel insanely privileged to have had the opportunity to study with Dick Schwartz. He is his insights into the human psyche, which are both original, but also once you start to pay attention there are evidence of it across cultures and religions and traditions spanning across human history his insight that we are not a single monolithic mono mind that we are just like nature just like our bodies just like everything composed of parts that work together to make a whole that's that moment of getting exposed to that first person with his guidance and teaching was without a doubt the most transformative experience for me and has completely altered the way I show up as a coach and a practitioner. And when I look back on those both beautiful moments from my childhood and also the hard moments, some of which we've touched on, this work has helped me heal and integrate so much of those so that in this moment right now i can show up more and more appreciative of myself and trusting of myself more aligned with what i care about and my values and more aware of the ways in which i'm not always living up my values and to hold that with compassion so i want to just say that that I feel super privileged to have had that opportunity to spend a week studying with with Dick Schwartz, the founder of Internal Family Systems. And uh, your question is like, what's the, what is it? What is, yeah, what right. is this, this this systemic kind of approach to understanding the mind? And there's so much I could say about this. So let me take a moment to sure. think about where I want to start. Essentially, it is a, a description of what it means to be human that points to the fact that all of us, not just people who've undergone trauma with a big T, who have disassociative di- uh, identity disorder, which used to be called multiple personality, all of us have multiple personalities, every single one of us. And assuming the physiological hardware, you know, the brain, the nervous system is intact and functioning within, within a sort of wide, there's a lot of neurodivergence, but within a sort of spectrum of functioning neurobiology, all of us have the hardware to, to support this simple truth that we have multiple personalities. When people first hear that, we live in a culture that's all about the individual, that's uh, all about like, you take care of yourself, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you ignore all the ways that you're actually leaning on systems and structures that allow you to tell yourself the story that you're pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. You're hard, you're tough, you don't show emotion. If you do, that's wrong, that's problematic. Like, there's lots in here. Um, but, But we live in a culture that this idea that we might be multiple is sounds crazy. It sounds... Like a fairy tale. It sounds like a science fiction story. In this training that I did with Dick, which by the way, I was on a waiting list for. And then three days before the training started, they called me up and said, Someone can't come. Do you still want to come? And I said, Yes. And I didn't even know what I was saying yes to. I just was like, someone else who I trust was like, You got to check this out. And what I what it turned out I was saying yes to was a chance to get to know some of my other personalities, not just the dominant ones that show up, had shown up until that moment in most of my interactions but but many other ones and that was an incredibly healing tr- transformative experience and even as i talk about it i'm aware that the whole week i had a skeptical parts of me that were going this isn't gonna what is this and every time we did the process which i'm happy to talk about more every time we did it I, there was a part of me going this isn't gonna work this time this is just you're just making this up andy but then it would work again and, and I'm aware, like, even as I'm talking about this, I'm aware of parts of me who I met that week who are kind of like getting activated right now. Um, and I'm aware of them in my body. I can notice their location in my body. I'm aware of sensation. I'm aware of thought patterns. So it's a, uh, it's a really beautiful re-, re redefinition of what we are. And that redefinition opens up some pretty fucking cool possibilities for living that push up against many of the boring, conventional, repressive, traumatic boundaries that our culture has sort of accumulated over the past few thousand years.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow, there's, there's
1: a lot in there. If
0: you'd be willing to share, could you say a little bit about a part of you that over that one week span, a part of you that you maybe reconnected with? in some sort of meaningful way, or part of you that was repressed that you were not paying any attention to that you connected with? And then what, what allowed that to happen? Mm -hmm. And what was the reintegration process like? And and then Mm. maybe even to go further from there, how has that made you more whole, if if you will?
1: Mm. Mm. You're probably familiar with the Enneagram. Yes. And a number of other people, Listening might be, I'm I'm presencing it because it's a useful tool for understanding the different kinds of energies that our personalities can have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, if you learn more about the enneagram, which we can debate its validity and blah blah blah. But just as like, if we think of it as a sort of lens for understanding, the the people who do a lot of work will say to you, Oh no no no! Like don't don't locate yourself as a three. You're a three, Mike. You're a three actually notice that you have access to all of these different energies, peacemaker, challenger, achiever, individualists. So um, I'm presencing that because my Enneagram at the time was type three. That was my dominant type. And the sort of misunderstanding I think of that tool is to go, oh, well, this is my, this is my forever limitation. I'll always be a type three. I'll always be working with this challenge. And in that week with Dick, I was able to meet the part of me, one of them at least, who holds what we might call that type three energy, a very performative part, a part who had learned because of all the things I've been through to, you know, show up with the privileges I have, to be polished, to be put together, to speak well, to be funny when it's appropriate, to to be quiet when it's appropriate, to be dominant when it's appropriate, the sort of very achiever oriented personality and I was able to meet that personality in the work that I did with Dick that week and that was like fucking pretty cool I was like oh I can talk to you and we can work on when you're being reactive and trying to overperform and what that does for you as a person as a coach as a friend as a partner so just if we just had if that was the only thing that happened then the week would have been mind-blowing and it was, but, but then as a result, uh, part of the internal family systems kind of physics of it, we might say, is that there are dominant parts who repress other parts. And those dominant parts are, we might call them managers. They try and manage your life and your world to keep you safe. And so my achiever part was a manager. Um, he was repressing a younger part of me who um, I had been repressing since at least I was 13. When I was 13, mentioned already, I was overweight. The other thing I haven't mentioned yet is that I was born with a condition called pyloric stenosis, which basically meant that my stomach was pinched shut. I was literally starving to get to death as an infant. And 40 years ago, the surgery at the time was much more uh, barbaric, brutal than it is now with orthoscopic surgery. So I still carry a very wicked scar from from this surgery I had when I was a 2 week old infant. And I and that scar had been a source of shame and I have a memory of being 13 being at a pool and hearing kids pointing at me and laughing and going like what's wrong with him? Does he have two belly buttons? What's what's up with his strange different overweight body? And the performative part of me was like we can't have any of that. You've got to be fit, you've got to be sexy, you've got to be smart. So, any of the stuff about you being overweight and shy and weird and different, we just, nope, that's not allowed. Mm -hmm. Because if people see that, you're going to get rejected, you're going to get made fun of, you're going to get hurt. And I'm not going to let that happen. Don't worry, Andy, I'm not going to let that happen. But over the course of this week, working with Dick, I was able to get in touch with that other younger 13 year old part who had been exiled Mm -hmm. out of the desire to protect me. And, and, help that part unburden the shame and embarrassment that I had experienced when I was 13. Mm -hmm. And now this is, everyone has different experiences around this. For me, I think in part because I had developed such an imaginative landscape as a kid, I have very, I can see these parts of me, even right now, as I talk about them very visually, I can see them. I can see the dazzler who, by the way, has become much more balanced. He's, he's matured and evolved. He's got a more of a devotional energy now commitment of service now as opposed to a performative energy and I have this other part who was before was this shy embarrassed 13 year old who's grown up a bit and and I now call him the voyager he's he actually has a ton of adventurous energy and spirit and he he can now bring that to me into the world in a way that the dazzler didn't understand that he was just trying to protect me from shame but he was also inadvertently uh, repressing all of this adventurous energy So now with both of these parts in my awareness and both of them more healed and whole, you ask like, how does this make you more whole? It allows for the best of the dazzler, this ability to to show up in many different contexts and play and perform without being too attached to needing to, to perform in a certain way that people will like me. He's less attached to that now. And it also allows for the Voyager to come out this much more, Adventurous, exploratory. Let me go go to places that are out on the edges that other people might be a little scared of. The voyager's like, no, let's go to the edge. Let's go. So that's one uh, one way that the work has helped me feel more whole.
0: Mm. Yeah. Wow. Andy, thanks so much for sharing all that. I just I want to present a couple of my reflections because you you said it so eloquently, and. One of the things that that comes up for me as you're describing that is, it seems, I, I don't know if there's a person who doesn't have some, we'll call it like six to 15 year old version of themselves that was poked at in some way that was not pleasant, and then developed some sort of strategy to make sure that that never happened again, or at least yeah. happened a lot less frequently. Yeah. And one of the beautiful things about internal family systems IFS is that it almost it allows us to get in touch with the part that protected us from that ever happening again. So like you you said it's a manager a, we develop almost all of us I think develop a manager who in some way is trying to protect that younger 6 to 15 year old version of us and if we can connect with that part, and, and this is another topic I wanted to explore with you, compassion and self-compassion. If we can have just incredible compassion for the, the role that that manager is playing for us. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we get in touch with the fact that that manager doesn't want to, it's working overtime. It's tired <laughs> yes. of working so yes. hard, right? Yes. And it doesn't, it doesn't really like doing that role so much anymore. It's actually and quite demanding. It's it a significant energy, energetic cost over, yeah. over time. And we don't even realize that that's not, that's only a part of us, right. That, that isn't us. And so there's a, a lot of wonderful things come out of this work, but that delineation of the parts of us versus our, you know, the capital S self, like you alluded to before is one thing. And then we have incredible compassion for maybe the, the scared, little boy in us, the the scared 13 year old who didn't want to be made fun of, and also can see the power in that 13 year old boy. Yeah. And so that's been an integral part of my work too, Andy, as you know, I mean, I've I've had the blessing of having a couple of sessions with you. We realized that this part of us this exiled part that we don't want to show the world actually has incredible gifts to offer. And Mm -hmm. it's, wow, there's just, Mm. there's such, Mm. if we can get in touch with all these different aspects of ourselves, we, there's an unlimited possibility that emerges in, in almost any given moment, which is not to say that we don't get tripped up a million times and get activated and flared up, but like, that's, that's just part of life really. But it's it's for me, it's more of the being able to, I'm able to tune into what's present for me in any given moment, much more adeptly than it almost feels like I was living a separate life several years ago, right? It's like, I didn't even realize that this was something that I could be aware of, let alone have awareness
1: of it. So I've talked to a lot of people I've done this work with who describe an experience of waking up. Mm -hmm. I had a client who said, I feel like I've been out to lunch Yes. this whole time. How did I not see this? And that also, then, then other parts can come in and start feeling shame about like not being aware of this. So then we work with that. But this to, to your to your extent, to the point that we can simply get in touch with the innate compassion we can have for any being who has suffered or who has tried really hard to be something so that they can be safe or that they can belong or that they have power or status or stability, all of these root human needs that our society often implicitly says, especially if you're not a certain, a certain kind of person and a certain kind of body with a certain color skin and a certain amount of money, born in a certain geography, like the, 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 the place of safety in our society, quote unquote safety, it just keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And we all of us are trying to scramble our way to that if we can. And in the process, we're taking on all of these burdens of shame and protection and survival. And to the extent that we can get in touch with that and have compassion for that, that's, that's a life changing stance. Mm -hmm. And the thing we haven't talked about too explicitly yet, but we've both alluded to, and this is maybe the most mind blowing part of the IFS model, the IFS understanding is that this idea that each of us have what in IFS is called the self with a capital S, there's some sort of center of gravity, some sort of conscious consciousness. And we could get really philosophical about what that is. If you look, again, if you look at different mystical traditions and philosophical traditions, there's lots of ideas about what this observer consciousness, this integrative consciousness, this healing consciousness is, but whatever it is, it's there. And uh, Dick talks about his work working with highly like, traumatized, with a capital T, people who, people who have been violently abused, uh, who have uh, been on the edge of death's door, um, who have survived things that most of us would assume in our society to mean that that person is broken and beyond repair. And... Doing this work with the parts, the protectors, the managers, the more extreme managers, protectors called firefighters who will use drugs and alcohol and cutting and self-harm and, and anger and violence. Use whatever it takes to get the pain away. And also these little young exiles who've been repressed out of the desire to protect. Even the the quote unquote most traumatized people have access to this healing energy. Mm-hmm. But but it, we can't get there unless we're willing to trust ourselves, unless we're willing to trust that we can be compassionate, even in the face of the parts of our past that feel really scary and overwhelming. And that takes time and patience and, and self-compassion and generosity, but it's beautiful to witness. It's beautiful to witness.
0: Do you still work with a coach who uses IFS as a modality? Like, is this something that you are mostly doing on your own because you have enough experience with it? Or do you work with a practitioner who can help get you even to a deeper level than you might be able to otherwise get on your own?
1: Yeah, both. I do a lot of this work on my own now, which is another beautiful, empowering thing. Many therapeutic relationships become codependent. Mm -hmm. And the you start to feel like I'm, unless I have this other external person who I can project my trust and confidence on, I'll, I'll never be able to do this myself. But this work is very self-empowering. Mm-hmm. So I do, I, I am able to do a lot of it with myself. Some of my clients who really click in with it, tell me that they, how they do it for themselves. And it's beautiful. And there are times when so much of my inner system is activated. So many of my parts are activated. I'm really feeling some intensity. And, you know, as an entrepreneur, as a father, as a partner, um, like there's a lot of things to worry about. I have plenty of parts who are like trying to manage all that. The intensity can get quite high and having someone to reach out to and lean on is, has been really. And so I have a few trusted coaches or therapists who, who I go to when I need some extra support. And that helps me a lot. Mm -hmm. Well, in
0: the area of leadership development, I'm finding myself curious about two things. One is, is like when you're coaching a, a leader, I'm I'm thinking, I'm trying to place myself in the listener's seat right now. And a listener might be thinking, that sounds really potent and powerful. And for someone who's- Part of coming, me is also going,
1: or that sounds really weird and I don't
0: know what they're talking about. <laughs> that there's, That's probably happening too, Andy, not gonna lie. But- you know, but there's a part of me and I imagine a lot of my listeners are thinking about like, how is this relevant for a a business Mm. leader, right? Mm. Like a a Mm. business leader is just, they want to, they want to generate results right away and they need something more tactical and something that's, uh, you know, practical in everyday use. And I would argue that this is very practical actually, but is this, so with leadership development, I my curiosity, like I said, is twofold is, is this something that you bring into every conversation that you have with a leader because of its potency? And what are some other modalities or tools that you use when, when you're coaching Mm. a leader, especially someone like yourself, who's an an entrepreneur father, who's like, really, they're doing, doing big things in every domain of their life.
1: Mm. Hmm. Gosh, there's a lot here. The thing I'm in touch with in the moment as context, there's some really cool research by this guy, Dashner Keltner out of UC Berkeley around the way that people who accumulate power actually, their brains actually change. Like there's evidence that there's, that there's shifts on their neurobiology and those shifts tend to make them overconfident. Like their perspective has got to be the right one. Uh, less empathic, so even if they had come up through the quote-unquote ranks, at once they reach a certain amount of power, they look back at the people who are still in the ranks they've come through and, and have less, less empathy for the difficulty of being at, at some level in whatever organizational hierarchy there is. Uh, and, and as a result of that overconfidence and lack of empathy, there's a, a sort of decision-making risk there, that senior leaders can think like they have all the answers and, and then create quite dire costs to the organization because they've missed information from the people who actually are doing the work, mm-hmm. right? That's, the, that's the, the sort of fatal mistake of many leaders is they get to the place of power and they think that that means they have all the answers. They might even feel the pressure to, to like, I have to have all the answers because now I'm the quote unquote leader. But that can be a real Achilles heel. So I don't always explicitly use this work with my leadership clients. I often do. But even if I don't, the work is about helping them get in touch with their reactivity, with their blind spots, with their with the ways in which their power has disrupted their access to reality. Right. Another, another, so that's their experience, but also people, the way that people relate to people in power. Okay, I'm gonna yes you. You know, people in power, and some people like that. Give me more yes people, like surround me with yes people, right? So there's all there's all these ways in which whether you're in power or you're relating to power, that impacts our ability to be authentic and true and speak what we know from where we sit. So this work is part of this is the ability to mindfully, consciously get in touch with your fears, your blind spots, your uncertainties, your ambiguities, and hold them uh, like an object that you can look at as opposed to being held by them, like something that's gripping you tightly for fear of letting go. Mm -hmm. And that's a really beautiful move that I think of all of the, the developmental work I've done, this internal family systems is the most powerful subject object switch which is that again that like taking something that's holding you that you're subject to you're subject to a fear you're afraid of something you can actually take the fear and hold it and make it an object and decide what to do with it with compassion mm-hmm. decide do i need to listen to this fear right now or is it maybe inaccurate is it over is it over driving against something that's not actually true that doesn't actually align with reality so so when we talk about leaders the context of leadership one thing that I want to help all of the leaders I work with do is be more awake to what actually is happening in their organizations and in their work, as opposed to what the parts of them think is happening based on how much power they have and who's telling them what and, and how much need they have to impress and perform and succeed and all of the other things that come when you step into a, a senior authority role.
0: Well, I, we're we're coming towards the the back end of the conversation. There's a couple more things I want to go over with you, Andy. One is it's come up in a, a few different ways already. We've talked about polarity and how our society. You live in the the Boston area. I live in New York, so we live in maybe a more culturally diverse areas than than a lot of other people get the privilege to live in, but. Nonetheless, our society really, a lot of times, lives in binaries. You're, you're either, you, you know, you said man or woman, you're either shy or outgoing, you're either an introvert, extrovert, there's all, there's numerous ways in which this shows up. A Republican or a Democrat. Uh, yes. Yeah, just endless. Down the line, right? And it's, in a lot of ways, it's like, if you toe both lines, you, you're told, like, come on, man, like, plant your flag, what do you what do you really stand for? What do you believe in? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I wanted to explore this, this, the topic of identity with you identity mm. and how, yeah, like I know that you're a podcaster and that you're a musician and you you create in all sorts of different ways and that could be, it can be challenging to step into new identities and I would just be curious to hear your, your reflection on what it means to be multi-dimensional and to have various different perspectives on things instead of there being a, a quote-unquote right way or V way or,
1: or something like that. Mm-hmm. Thanks for presencing this. If I get on my soapbox around this, I would go so far as to say that the future of our species depends on our ability to, for all of us, in a way that's authentic and true for us to get in touch with our own dimensionality, our own multi dimensionality. Mm-hmm. If we over identify with one role in our life, and, and for many of us right now who are privileged enough to have a job, that is often our job. If we over identify with that job and uh, the economy crashes, which has happened several times in, in recent human history, just in the past, you know. 10, 20, 100, 200 years, we're not even talking about the you know, 10,000 years of human civilization. So much change has happened and so much more change is coming that our capacity to meet the moment, I believe, will in large part depend on our ability to stand in the role or the identity that will most serve us when we're in that moment. And there's a great story of from the book tribes by Sebastian younger that I often point to where he talks about a group of miners in Chile who are trapped inside the mine. And again, there's a, a binary that'll come in here that, that we can tease apart, but there, but there, but maybe just you and your listeners start to imagine when I say the word uh, coal miner, mm-hmm. just notice what image comes in your head. Right. Yeah. And, and I can speak for the image that comes to mind. I'm picturing a, a gruff, dour, strong man uh, who's smeared and dirty and who doesn't have much access to emotions and maybe even thinks that that's kind of bullshit. And, you know, they're there to get shit done and make it happen and just like get out of the way if you're a softie. Mm-hmm. And that energy, that's sort of we just described an archetype or maybe a kind of collection of archetypes or identities, right? The sort of strong, tough, sort of stoic focused like there's these energies and identities well the story in the book is the miners get trapped in the mine and you can imagine the strong tough decisive archetypal energy being really useful in those first few hours how do we get out of here we've got to okay we got to get dynamite we got to get it resources we're going to go this way can we get can we blow through that wall no we can't okay is there a way to drill up here and eventually the that energy had exhausted every possibility. The miners who had access to this decisive, what we sometimes call leadership energy, had run out of options. And the simple truth they had to come to face was that they were trapped in that mine. And if they were gonna get out of there, it was because someone else was gonna come to help. And if they had any shot of someone else coming out to help, they had to survive. And this really interesting thing is that only people down there were men, but other identities started to emerge. Caretaker identities started to emerge. Men, and I don't know, maybe some of the men who are really decisive also were able to turn and become caretakers. But whatever the case was, that there were, there were men in that group who stepped forward and said, like, hey, like, we got we to gotta talk to each other. Like, oh, those two people kind of don't like each other. I'm going to just work with that. I'm going to manage, you know, re, there's these relational skills, these, these quote unquote soft skills, which I, I hate that phrase. I call them adaptive skills or relational skills started to come to the fore. And um, and the group last, lasted down there for over 30 days because they had access to the identities they needed to survive in that context. If they had said the only way out is we blow our way out and if we can't do that, then we got to blow ourselves up. I mean, we see that shit happening. Yes. We see people who are literally willing to destroy everything they love and everything around them because they, if they didn't, it would be a threat to their identity. Mm-hmm. And that threat may have been adaptive once in human history but it's maladaptive now if we don't have the capacity to hold multi-identities we're screwed that's my it's okay so soapbox i'm now off my soapbox what does that mean for you and i it means at the very least we can have a lot more fun than we're giving ourselves permission to have and i'll name that parts of the stuff you're presencing came from some of my achiever energy the the who i talked about earlier And that's not always, that's both a strength and a a liability. So if I'm only always doing stuff to prove myself to others, I'm going to burn out. But if I can get in touch with the essence of that energy, which is this wonderful, performative, playful, creative, let it rip and see what happens. And then the parts of me that want more quiet and solitude, who want to go do deep thinking, give them some presence. And the parts of me who want intimacy and love and connection, like give them some presence. And by letting all of these different parts through these different identities, we, life is richer. It's more beautiful. We're more equipped to handle the suffering that's inevitable. We're more compassionate to others who have identities that are different than ours. Cause we're aware of some part of us that might hold a piece of that identity of the outsider or, or the loner or the adventurer. So I think like, existentially being multidimensional is going to be critical for us as a species. And kind of day to day, we can have more fun and be less hard on ourselves and be more open to experiences. Yes.
0: Here, here. Hey, I'll, I'll take soapbox, Andy. I I don't mind if you're (laughs) shouting from a soapbox or where you're standing from. I, I, uh, (laughs) I've heard you relay that story before and it, it always, touches me and uh in in different ways based on where where i'm at and what i'm feeling in the moment i i think it's a really beautiful story right there isn't one way to lead counter to what uh our culture might propagate it's there's so many different ways to lead and so many different ways to to make a difference big or small and it's not just action oriented all the time doing things achieving there's a different contexts, different moments call for different parts of us to show up and so That's I, right. that story does a really wonderful job of uh, presencing that and illustrating that yeah is there anything that we haven't gotten to that that you would like to bring into the conversation before I towards the end I always end with uh, a few more rapid fire type of questions
1: okay I want to say one more thing briefly about leadership then I want to Go back to the world building piece that we started with, because yes. I think it connects to what you we were just jamming on. Your insight that any of us can lead, that's a core part of the leadership work that I do professionally. People confuse authority and power with leadership, but we only need to look out to see plenty of people who have lots of power, who are protecting the status quo and likely making things worse for other people in the process, protecting the status quo. That's not leadership. Leadership is is the work of helping a group of people or collective, a society, a planet thrive. And anyone can do that regardless of how much social, political, organizational, institutional power they have. And it's a choice. So that's another beauty of being aware of our multi-identity, multi-dimensionality is we can get in touch with the parts of us who can help us lead when the moment demands it. And the parts of us who can help us be team players and followers when the moment demands it and realize that that doesn't say anything about our worth as a as a person, are we the most powerful or the least powerful. Rather that every every one of us and any group can can show up and exercise leadership on behalf of the greater good, and I think that's a beautiful way to move through the world, something that I aspire to and try and help the people I work with aspire to. And that connects to the question of world building and science fiction I mean, science fiction is a wonderful canvas to imagine what kind of world could we build?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, there are literally infinite possibilities. Anytime you hear someone say something like, well, that's just the way we do things here. You're, you're, on, the, you're on the trailhead of a, uh, of a trap. You're on the trailhead of a cognitive, emotional, imaginational trap because they've lost sight of the fact that, that the way we do things around here has evolved and re-evolved and redefined countless times. And there are just limitless possibilities, technological possibilities, social possibilities, relational possibilities, artistic possibilities. And to the extent that we can have access to those, we can literally co-create and participate in building a different world than the one we live in. Mm-hmm. And we don't have a blank canvas, but, we, but, but there are lots of room to take things down and reassemble and build new parts and add in new pieces So if we all get get into that and have fun with that, that's also a world I want to live in where we don't just assume like, oh, well, because everyone has cars and we drive around on roads and each each of us lives in our own isolated house. So that's just the way life is. No, no, there's lots of different ways life could be. And I'm really passionate about helping people realize that they that we can all be world builders. Yeah.
0: Love it, Andy. Well, just a, a few more questions on my end. One question I love to ask all my guests, and you you talked about having fun, and I I think this point this question points to just a a way that in your everyday life that you have fun. What's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy?
1: Mm. I love walking outside in nature, regardless of the weather. Mm. I in particular, there's some there's a part of me that derives pleasure in walking out in more extreme weather, like when it's snowing or raining, and you know being able to like handle that or embrace that that kind of energy of that but really any any day of the week if i can walk in the woods for an hour that is joyful and nourishing for me um and and then as a father i there are parts of me that are like like go like oh god this is so hard being a father like uh, i wish we could just like somehow get them to 16 and they go take care of themselves so i can you know like i'm totally Want to honor that. Uh, and there are parts of me who love, like, just before I came in with you, I was with my kids for uh, a little bit longer than anticipated. So we got started later than we had hoped to. But we were just running around. We have a sandbox. My daughter was just chasing me, throwing sand at me. And like, she thought it was the funniest thing in the world. And mm-hmm. I did too. It's like, this is so great. We can just play. So Those are two, being in nature, being with my kids are are big sources of joy for me right now. And then the last piece is anything that involves art and creativity, either on my own or with other people. That's like, I've hosted these men's retreats called the Society of the Gentle Beasts. Bunch of men get together, anyone who identifies as a male, kind of regardless of biology, we get together, make art individually, collectively, share it with each other. Like, oh, I could do that all day. (laughs)
0: Awesome. I think maybe a separate conversation I would love to unpack your experience as a parent because you you have so much to say about world building. And one of the best ways that we can create a better world is to be really effective parents. But don't have the time right now to go into that. <laughs> we'll do that another time. Another time perhaps. Yeah. Uh, another question I'd love to ask is in terms of investments, it could be time, money anything, energy, what have been, if if I look in the last, say, five to 10 years, what have been some of your most important or most memorable investments that
1: you've mm. made? Mm. Well, I already present studying with Dick Schwartz um, at the Next Praxis Institute. That is emblematic uh, for me. I, I believe the best investments anyone can make are in the investments that, that allow us to do inner work that allow us to get more conscious and aware of what's happening inside of our awareness so that we can show up in the external world with more skillfulness and more grace and creativity. And I've just done a lot of those over the past decade. So it's hard to even, pick some out of the hat, but, but getting certified as a yoga teacher, studying with Dick Schwartz, doing a silent retreat, hosting an artistic retreat, you know, like I probably sit here and come up with about 20 investments I've made in that genre of self-understanding and self-compassion and, and spiritual inner work. And it's, it always pays off, always pays off. Uh-huh. Even if I don't enjoy it, it yes. always pays off. Oh yeah.
0: I can speak to that too. Yeah where do you feel most unfinished right now? Like where, where do you, where are you placing most of your attention around your development? Hmm.
1: No, that's a fun question. Well, we have a third child on the way, which um, is not something we plan for just, I don't have time to explain all the details, but folks can do some research. Our, Our babies are IVF babies in vitro fertilization. And we ended up just so happened that we ended up with three viable embryos and In the beginning, when we started this process, we were in a kind of place of privilege of like, well, maybe we'll have one, maybe we'll have two. But it's a big expense and big time and big money and it's invasive and complicated. And then we met our daughter and we went like, holy shit, what if they had plucked a different embryo out of the hat? We never would have met her. So our heads are still going like, oh God, how are we going to make this work? But our hearts already were opening to the possibility that we might have to have all three of these children. And then we met our our son, Who's now almost two, and, and and in a few months our third will be here, and, and so it's this like very heart led decision that's also producing like my wife and I regularly look at each other, and go like, what the hell are we doing? Like <laughs> this is gonna be so expensive, and it's already so hard with two, and you know like school and car and all of these implications, and and uh, and so that feels like uh, there's gonna be I'm gonna have to really work on letting go of some stories I have about what life was supposed to be if we had gotten, had only one kid in the conventional way and, and it's not what our, that's not what we planned for. So that feels like the next edge as a, as a father and also as a partner that feels like where the work is in the, in the months and years ahead.
0: Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Well, before I ask my final question, Andy, where would you invite my listeners to connect with you online Mm. or your book or, or otherwise?
1: Yeah, they can. um, If they find me on LinkedIn from there, there are little like, you know, portals to all the other places. My uh, my leadership work I do with a really amazing firm called KONU, K-N-O-U dot org. My personal developmental coaching, life coaching work I do through mindfulcreative.coach, although that is changing by the time people hear this, it might be under my new branding, which is called dimensional, which is funny Mm -hmm. because we're talking about being multidimensional. I don't know if I've shared that with you yet. So that's going to evolve, but mindfulcreative.coach will get you there. And then Google the Wonder Dome and you can find that that's my podcast. You can find that on every wherever pods are casted. So lots of ways to get connected to what I'm up to. Yeah. Highly
0: recommend that everyone check out wherever Andy is, is located, check out his LinkedIn, check out his website, Check out his podcast. I'm, I'm a huge fan, like I said. And Thank you. The final question that I ask, Andy, it, it's really similar. I know that you started your podcast around the question what is your fiercest hope for humanity? Mm. Mm-hmm. And my podcast is Mike's Search for Meaning. And in a way, it, what is your fiercest hope for humanity is, is a question around what, is, what does it mean to be alive? What, mm. what is the meaning mm. of all of this? Mm. And so Mm. my, my final question
1: is what does it mean to you to live a meaningful life? Mm. Mm. The sort of in-progress answer I can give to you around that is something like inviting or imagining that I and we are participating in one of the most amazing sort of experiences ever. And it is cosmic it is the cosmic game this is third at least a 13 and a half billion year game that the universe has been playing and w- we've emerged with these unique capacities as a species that at their best are highly generative creative and honestly could turn our planet into into the eden of legend if only we could slow down enough to stop killing each other and killing so much of the planet. So I, for me, the search, like my lived life of meaning is a, is a life oriented towards that possibility that we are participating in a billion year game that if we play it well, could go on almost infinitely.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Andy, thanks so much for Taking the time to be on my show. It's it's been an honor. And you always start your episodes by sharing some sort of uh, appreciation or, or how you experience your guests. And I I wanted to end my mm-hmm. episode with how I experience you, man. And I experience you as someone who is th- this is short selling it big time, but someone who is just walking so firmly on his path and what I experienced your path to be is, is someone who's leading with his heart just wide fucking open mm. and is, mm. is really, you're up to everything that you want to be up to. And I say that not from a place of like, you are walking your path and it's selfish. Your path to me is uh, invites everyone else. One of the beautiful things about you is that it, it creates that safe space that you alluded to for other mm. people to mm. feel like, yes, there is a sense of possibility, right? Mm. and uh, it, it makes it accessible, and uh, I just feel in, in whether I'm in conversation with you or listening to you, there is a natural heightened sense of possibility on what what could be here, really, what mm. like what's available to us, and mm. it's a gift. It really is a gift that you have, and wow. it, it shows up in so many ways, so thanks for sharing it with
1: my audience and, and with me in this moment. Oh, man. I'm really touched by that. Thank you. I was about to say I, I wish we could have recorded that so I can listen to it when I need, need a pick me up and I was like oh we did record it so anytime I'm, parts of me are feeling like uh, that we're not on our path or that something's missing I'm going to, I'm going to remember that Thank you for that that generous gift of being seen. Yeah
0: you are very welcome my friends and uh, to all the listeners i hope that you continue walking your path and whatever you're listening have a great rest of your day night, and uh, take good care thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to mike's search for meaning if you enjoyed it please subscribe share this episode with your friends and leave a review i look forward to seeing you next time my friends and until then stay safe stay well and keep living with purpose